Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Now, the majority of this podcast was recorded before the terrible events outside Parliament and on Westminster Bridge, and we've decided that we think a period of reflection on that is probably the best thing once the facts have been established. So we've decided to continue with the podcast recording as normal. So please enjoy. And our thoughts are with everyone affected. So uh, this week we are welcoming a new colleague to the fraternity of journalists. George Osborne has been announced surprisingly on Friday as the new Evening Standard editor in kind of a funny... I mean, there are loads of bits. It's not funny. There's no part of it. No, there is a bit that's funny, which is the bit where someone went to him and went, hey, George, uh, I wonder if you could help me with my application to be Standard editor. And he went, there's a job opener Standard editor. Yeah, why don't you write, like, I hate London, I think buses are bad... Uh, and then, and then he went and made his own application and got the job. That's I think, quite funny. Yeah, I mean, it's odd because uh, it, it is one of those things where every element of it boggles my mind. And weirdly, of course, you, usually what happens is something bad happens. You adjust to it, and you, you you don't stop thinking it's bad. But you know, for example, when when I'm when I'm on the train through the Midlands and and I go through Nuneaton or Stafford or any of the other many places Labour lost in 2015, I I get a little sad. But I, I'm not, I don't wake up every day with the same sense of crushing, crushing disappointment. Dis- disappointment than I did uh, the Friday after the general election. Um, you know, I, I can now hear the word Sunderland without... Oh, like, I can't. Um, you know, whereas I weirdly am... St- Every day I become more angry about George Osborne's Well, here's new the job. thing, right? So we're in the we're in the podcast safe space, right? The hermetically sealed podcast safe space. So what's been really notable about the reaction? There was a lot of kind of like, wow, okay, kind of reaction. And then clearly everybody on Twitter went to the DM mobile, right? Because this guy's gonna be in a position to write mean things about you, not give you a job. Um but I spoke to a lot of people and there was a general consensus of WTF. Um yeah. Mostly. Okay, so the initial thing was like, literally, does this guy have a time turner? How is he going to do all of this? Followed quite swift segue into this is just the most amazing conflict of interest. And actually, that's the one that really seems to have got um, his own party seemed to be upset about that. Yeah, I mean, I think so. The, the conflicts of interest 
quite literally, if you if you have a copy of the Evening Standard, which I realise for the beneficiary of our, our many uh, listeners outside of London is a daily London free sheet. Although actually, I, I'm now going to take back my apology for that because there is literally no part there is no part of the country where you could have an issue where something affecting 13 million people would get weirdly as little coverage as this massive conflict of interest or the poison cloud over london right there's this weird thing that the media is incredibly westminster uh, obsessed but actually massively neglects london basically to compensate for the fact that it's like well well the way we'll deal with the fact we never talk about how politics affects anywhere outside of sw1 is we will even more not talk about why say people in Newham voted to leave yeah, vote, yeah, the, yeah for yeah. example I thought then because there was a tweet by Mary Black of the SNP MP this week about how terrible it is that Scotland's got all these millions of people and only um, 59 MPs right and then someone pointed well actually London's got a much bigger proportion 73 MPs actually you know in terms of MP per head of population London does well so her point was and you know a single city could vote to you know to overrule the will of a whole country and you're like Yes, but let's take you know the fact that Scotland is for its landmass not very highly populated, whereas the southeast is incredibly highly populated, and that people do that irritating thing where they kind of go, "Oh my God, this is like a London thing," and you go, "Yeah, that's nine million people. Like that is a significant number of of people." Yeah, um, but yeah, so there are a lot that on every page of it there is a, another hilarious conflict of interest. There are things covering speeches in the legislature he still aspires to be a member of. There are any number city of policies. The city pages is the one way at that point sort of exploding sounds come from bits of my brain and like blood starts pouring from one of my ears as I, as I just struggle to process the necessary self-confidence on George Osborne's part to go, yeah, I'm not going to wait for the, to get cleared by the common well, you just think about what brought down Piers Morgan, you know, or nearly actually... The, the thing before the thing that brought down Piers Morgan, right, was the Vigeland share scandal, which was all about should you own shares that you know that you own that are covered in your city pages, right? And you've got a turbo version of that, which is that what happens if someone comes, like not that any journalist would be obviously kind of, would ever do this to go, boss, boss, got this brilliant story about Blackrock, boss. I don't know why everyone's from, you know, a, a, a minor East End crime gang in my imagination. Boss, boss, got a, got a great story about Blackrock, boss. And then what am I, Osborne, in this? Yeah, you be Osborne. Oh, what's the story? Uh, they're like, well, dodgy boss. And then presumably I go off and phone BlackRock. And, but yeah, it is, it is very uh, weird. And also, I mean, the other thing, I think for the, from the standards perspective, it makes a lot of sense, right? The, the standard has never been, and one of the interesting things, I think there probably is the market for a free, a free left-wing London newspaper. Um, I think he probably covers like, like his um, his politics probably cover a large enough sway that that is a commercial. Like I think in terms of his political positioning, um, one of the things that we wrote on the day was you know the the Evening Standard is a very aggressively pro Tory, not even pro right wing, pro Tory paper already, and now you're just kind of like you know it, it will do exactly what it says on the tin. Like it very explicitly was pro Boris, and then it very aggressively campaigned for Zach Goldsmith in the mayoral election. So this is not a kind of wild divergence from its you know long mission to be an independent, yeah. neutral observer of London politics. Yeah, and I think in terms of you know the fact that we are sitting here talking about the Evening Standard, not something that we've really done before from a commercial perspective and their perspective, I kind of understand it. The the bit which really sort of boils my nugget is um that's a phrase i'm not going to use again is uh 
So George Osborne still wants a future in in politics, not on the sidelines, but in politics, as shown by his whole thing going, I will continue to remain the MP for Tatton, right? But this isn't the classic Osbornism. I mean, if you had to distill Osbornism to anything, it would be like, I am so clever. I've laid such an amazing trap by sawing through this log so that anyone who steps on the log will fall into the pit beneath. And you're like, George, George, you're, you're standing on the log. Yeah, because... So... There, one, you know, if 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 you want if you want to be powerful in Parliament, you you need to have mates who are MPs. That means you need to spend time talking to MPs, not notionally editing a paper. Right? How will the diary column? So if the diary column goes like, oh, you know, name a random Tory MP. I don't know, like Andrew Bridgen. Andrew Bridgen said something stupid at a party. Well, Andrew Bridgen's not going to do him any favors, right? So it's it, it's stupid from 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 that kind of perspective. Then there's the point that a lot of people have said, yeah, mostly via, I can't say this publicly, kind of, you know, mostly via DMs, kind of that kind of thing. A lot of people have gone, hmm, we think maybe he's going to go for London mayor, which seeing as at the next election, the mayoral election will almost certainly be on the same day as the general election. And and that turnout being higher helps both of the major parties, but it particularly will, one assume, helps the Tories if the opinion polls continue their current trajectory. And it also it doubly helps the Tories because basically there are people who have the right to vote in London elections who don't think of themselves as living in London, who aren't really touched by anything the mayor does. So Sadiq can't really build a personal brand, right, mm. who will just vote for the Tory candidate. So there are lots of reasons why... The, it's the Tories to, it's for the, the taking. It's, it's, a, it's a good yeah. opportunity for them. But he has to be selected by the Conservatives first, right? And... Theresa May will do her utmost to prevent that happening. He'd need a lot of support from MPs in the Conservative Party and the Conservative hierarchy for that to happen. Seeing as it seems quite likely that, because he is taking the piss, right, to be frank... But also, how is he going to do that? How is he going to run? Because presumably he won't want to give up the standard editorship before running for the Conservative selection for mayor. So is he going to still edit the paper while he's... I mean, this is when it begins to be like... But I think, at we, this I think point, we all know that there are like, you know, there are kind of things that bite. There is a kind of an elite in political media, the people who all know each other and stuff like this. But you're making it a little bit obvious, George. But I think the thing is, is going, oh, but would he still be editing it while running? It would be a bit like if you came upstairs and I'd killed three of the web desk. But then when I killed the fourth, you're like, whoa, what are you doing here? Right. <laughs> like, you know, he's, he's already the, the conflict of interest. He has maxed out that problem. Right. Short of him, like putting, you know, short of him, like reading something in the city papers one day, buying stocks in the next day, and having as the front page the, the final day, local man has shares windfall, <laughs> and a big picture of him holding a giant check. Short of him doing that, he's really at maximum conflict of interest already. So I can weirdly see how you would have a situation where, you know, it was like headline, local man runs for Tory for Tory nomination. Area no. man seeks yeah, Tory. Yeah, you can, you but can the you other can thing is that no that one will say publicly, right, is that he has upset a lot of journalists. And obviously lots of people who want to be employed by him won't kind of say this, but there is a feeling among journalists that actually journalism is, has got significantly more miserable as a kind of career occupation over the last 10 or 20 years. And actually now most journalists don't swan about having three-hour lunch breaks and, you know, kind of pootling in to file a, a column. Actually, most people work pretty hard um and the idea that you can kind of just like that this is your sort of side hustle is a bit tough and then there comes this sort of well of course he'll just be the editor-in-chief and you're like but i don't think he'll be paid like an editor in or an editor at large right he'll be paid like an editor 
And so at that point, you've essentially I mean, said... He, this is the other thing. It's just like, at this point, what does he need, like... What does he need the money for? Yeah. I find that both terrifying and impressive. If someone was giving me... Six, I'm sorry, if I was giving 650k to advise BlackRock, I would not be down here in this catacomb with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No offence. I would, I would be at home, putting my feet up, probably, to be honest, in a nicer flat than the flat I actually live in. I love my flat, but, you know... For that much amount of money for Bread Rock, I could live in one of the nice little terraced houses opposite. You could live in that horrible Battersea sort of dildo thing, I couldn't you? I could live in the dildo, yeah. That no one lives in. I mean, you pretty much have literally the whole thing to yourself. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so obviously he's upset a lot of journalists, including people, not just people who, who, who have something to lose in saying, oh, I'm cross with you, right? Because... I've certainly heard of more than one editor who's gone, wait, 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 what? So I worked really hard to be editor of my publication and some bloke who, because also let, let's not forget, there is... That's the thing, I think I would I would feel really different about it if he'd gone like, I'm doing a massive career change, you know, like I'm going to come back in. It's the idea that he doesn't, th- he doesn't think there's anything to learn and you can just kind of... It's a little bit like the fact when you know when people tell you that they, and then this is going to be the most moany journalist thing to say when people tell you that they think they could be they'd be a really good columnist because they've written like they've had one strong opinion and you're like yeah having the, the first opinion is fine it's like the 19th opinion where you just don't want to have any more opinions and you still got to grind out some words about something that's but come on, that's you true just professionalism need, like, you need like the you just need the four columns right these damn kids what are they up to Let's have an honest conversation about X. Oh, I love let's have an honest conversation about X because you never actually have the conversation yeah. about X. Um, oh, what, what's like the third boilerplate one? Uh, uh, feminism has gone too far. That's a, that's a classic yeah. one. Um, and then why I... As an X, think Y about Z. Yeah, and, and then you've done. Just, just rinse and repeat those forever and ever. But the other problem is, so he... But the, the bigger problem, I think, for him is that because... Because he is obviously taking the piss of the second job rule, right... In the, when they drew up the latest round of guidance, no one, I think, imagined you would have a situation where you have a, a man who is, let's face it, not even pretending, even in his letter to his constituents in Tatton, he's not pretending to live there, right? A, a man who basically has outsourced his constituency work to his staff, earning a ludicrous amount of money to advise some investment company, going around giving speeches, being a fellow at some Kissinger Institute thingy-bobby in the States, and is now editing a national newspaper, right? So at that point, because the one thing which makes Osborne absolutely dead in political terms is if he is the man responsible for every Tory MP with a second job having to give up their second job, right? Yeah, because you talk to a lot of Tory MPs who will say things to you like, I could have earned a lot more money than this, right? Because of the kind of relatively different backgrounds between Conservatives and other MPs, you know, lots of Tory MPs feel like it was a choice between this or, you know, £250,000 a year in whatever it was I did. So they, for them, they they feel like 78 grand for being an MP is actually like a pay cut yeah. that they need to supplement for the kind of lifestyle that they thought they would... Yeah, whether and, or not the rights or wrongs of that are not for this podcast, the, but that is how they feel and they don't want anyone ruining that. And then there's them. another group who are, I mean, admittedly, it's a lovely problem to have, but who are slightly more sympathetic, which is let's imagine you've been a cabinet minister for a long time, right? Whether you were in cabinet in Labour until 2010 or you've been in cabinet until Theresa May or David Cameron has fired you and now you like sit on some board 
or weirdly you've gone back to I don't know dentistry or anything where you can like do a couple of hours into work and you've you've got back to the salary you had when you were in the cabinet and perhaps say you've got a mortgage on the basis that you have the salary of someone in the in the in the cabinet now yes of course these are all problems that you I most of our listeners including most of our listeners who are MPs would kill to have however if you've got very used to servicing your mortgage on 140k which is your cabinet salary and you've been able to get a second job to get to 130k and then Osborne waltzes in and it results in everyone losing their right to do a couple of hours of work as a barrister or a doctor or you know like any of these jobs that lots of Tory MPs did before which you can kind of like sneak in a very high paying hour here and there you are just going to hate him forever. And this is the thing. It is the classic Osborne thing of like, oh, you've done something really cunning. But actually, have you have you thought this through? Because it, even if it turns out George Osborne is like the best editor of a newspaper since Jesus Christ, right? He was a great editor. It, that man is, had a gift with a headline. I mean, it is literally the most well-selling book in, in history. So he kind of, yeah, he had like a... He wasn't... Well, I suppose technically, if you believe in the Trinity, he was responsible for all of it, even the Old Testament. Yeah, but... Even if he was, you know, even if yeah, he turns out to be the best in cabinet standard, everyone will always go, oh, it's his deputy, right? Because w- we will all assume that, that he has no idea what he's doing and he just sits there doing that weird face he'd do on the front bench occasionally. I like the suggestion that someone said that they could all troll him by bringing him, like, the crossword and being like, oh, we just brought you the crossword to, um, to, to finish, just to, you know, like editors do, right? We don't send the crossword until the editor's done the crossword to check that it's possible to do it. Yeah. There'd be some great. I mean, there's got to be some great mileage for office pranks. Can I leave you with one image though, which has made me happy? But this is why I'm not. I'm much more chilled out about this whole thing than you. Try to imagine, if you will, Theresa May's face when she found out. I just think she'd have been happy about it. This is the worst thing about it. Not only is he. I mean, I'm not saying that my our industry isn't full of like cronyism and all of those things. Not only is he like making a mockery of like our industry, our country, because it's such a. It's such a. Th- it, it's just. Oh, it's just so, it's the kind of thing which, which, it it literally is the kind of thing that relatives of mine in Africa have texted me to be like, your country's going the same way as ours, right? This is literally (laughs) the kind of thing that happens in places that Amnesty does like long reports about democratic, you know, difficulties. It is, and, and also... As well as doing that, Theresa May will have sat there going, wow, my enemies do just keep finding ways to blow themselves up. She'd have been happy about it. It's so bad. And on that final thought. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. (laughs) 
We're lucky enough now to be joined by Mike Thompson, who is a BBC foreign correspondent, who was involved with a really extraordinary book called The Raqqa Diaries, which were smuggled in pieces out of Raqqa when it was held by ISIS Daesh. We'll be using Daesh during this conversation because that's how Samir, who wrote the diaries, a pseudonym, refers to them. But Mike, tell me, where did this start? Where did this project start? Well, initially, I was asked to try and get some voices out of Raqqa, and some colleagues thought that might not be too difficult, you know, just give them a call. But of course, Raqqa is one of the most isolated and frightened cities on earth. And uh, it took me quite a long time to come to the conclusion this was a very, very difficult operation. I did finally get in touch with another big activist group, uh, but most of their members had been forced to flee, but finally made contact with Sama's group, Al-Shakir 24, and did one interview uh, with him. Uh, until it became clear to us that if we carried on doing any more of these, uh, he could be discovered because of the equipment needed to broadcast to get online in a place where that's very tightly controlled. Uh, so he said, well, look, um, well, he agreed rather to, to do his, uh, uh, his observations in diary form from then on. That was back in, uh, uh, ooh, we were talking late late 2015. So, I mean, what's I think is, so Raq is in eastern Syria, and at the time when these diaries start, it's a bit, it's under control by Daesh, they roll in, right? And they very quickly start putting in these incredible restrictions on people. You mentioned the fact of not being a, so there are kind of internet cafes and stuff like that, but very tightly monitored. Um, That's so, right. So how hard is it to get anything out of it? What, were the, what are the ways that people get stuff out of there? Well, it's got more and more difficult to get information out of there. People used to use the internet cafes a lot more, and then, of course, they started to realise that's what they were doing, that's how they were getting information out. Uh, and there's very little in the way of um, actual phone lines, mobile phone lines. But what people have been doing is using apps like WhatsApp, for instance, to, to call out on when they can get the internet. But even that is very hard to get because electricity is very spasmodic in, in many parts of the city. Um, going back to what you said about the way that Daesh took over, uh, initially, they came in with an, other groups, other rebel groups uh, in 2013, in fact, in March 2013. And the three, the three main groups, there was uh, Daesh, uh, there was um, uh, the Free Syrian Army, and the group then known as the Al-Nusra Front. Mm. And uh, it became a battle, really, between Al-Nusra and, uh, and Daesh, who was going to get control. And by early 2014... Uh, Daesh had slowly taken over and Nusra had, uh, had left the scene. And, and uh, Sama describes in the book how we go from there when there was people were being told to do this and do that, but it wasn't so much enforced. All of a sudden, you do this or there are really awful consequences. I think some of those things that he describes are extraordinary. You know, finding somebody, the body of somebody he knew um, decapitated and crucified or, you know, put outside his, his family's house. You know, as someone else who was found with just his mobile phone had a picture of someone who's suspected of being an activist and that was enough. Um, I think that the risk that he ran to get this stuff out is is really incredible. But the content of what there is, I thought, was fascinating. So you mentioned those rebel groups, but he's sort of saying that um, Daesh seemed to be selling, they seem to be in control of the oil fields during this period, but they seem to almost sometimes be selling the oil back to the regime, even yes. though they're allegedly these two you know, huge enemies of each other. Exactly. I mean, in the book, uh, Sama talks about it as them having a cosy business relationship or appearing to have. And in fact, I did talk to... Uh, somebody from the Royal United Services Institute uh, when we had been chatting about this book. And he told me about how uh, engineers from the government, or at least Syrian engineers, had come in and helped repair uh, phone, uh, phone connection centres in Raqqa. And I said to him, well, 
that doesn't mean to say that the government necessarily knew about this. He said, oh, yes, it does. They will have had to okay it. They will have sent them in. And also, of course, we have Daesh uh, selling oil, apparently, to, to the government. It's a very odd relationship. It's, it's almost as if the, the, the two not only tolerate each other, but, but seem to have quite a, as Sabah says, quite a cosy relationship. And there's also this story of them going to plead to the Assad regime over his father who got jailed by the old Assad senior, right? So there is a kind of feeling of a, a continuity of a failed state here, of, of corruption and one kind of gang of warlords passing on to another, which is something I wasn't quite, I wasn't really expecting that. Was that did, did that come across strongly to you? It did really, yes. That was, of course, when he writes about that, that was when he was a child and mm. his, he went with his mother uh, to, uh, to Damascus and he was expecting this relative to be offering all sorts of special help and sympathy for the fact that his father had evidently been arrested and had, had disappeared. And this, this, this guy who they went to was quite influential. And uh, that's, in fact, what he sold himself on. He said, you know, I can do all sorts of things if you pay me. And uh, they said when they went there, he showed no sign of any sort of family <laughs> sympathy or affection. And uh, uh, initially said he couldn't help at all because it was political. And then suggested, look, what you need to do is just get... get uh, uh, get an apology through to the um, uh, the um, boss of your husband, that's to the wife, and uh, and maybe things will be all right if he apologises. Uh, yes, it's a very, it, 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 it was a sort of, you, you read in the diary how obviously it was something that quite depressed Sama and disappointed him, along with his, uh, um, his um, relatives, young relatives, the other children, who he thought he'd get along really well with and he was really pleased to spend time with to start with. And then he said, I soon realised they didn't, they were being condescending. They were talking down to me because of my accent, because we came from part of the country that they actually would have come from, but they were born in Damascus. So yes, we they were kind of treated like yokels, didn't yes. they, basically, when they turned up in Damascus by this quite shishi sort of city family, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. Um, and in the course of the diaries, his father is killed in an airstrike and his mother in the end, you know, is one of the people who's most... You know, she's she's very at peace with the idea that he has to leave, he has to get out, right? Yes, but he, she never actually says that to him. And you get the feeling what he's saying is that she knew it was the best. And by the end, when it was thought that the that, that Daesh were onto him, it was really the only thing he could do for his safety. But you get the feeling that as a mother, she couldn't bring herself to suggest to her son that he leaves, knowing she may never see him again, and knowing too that escaping is very dangerous and he could well be caught and executed for that. So she just looks at him. He describes how she, she looks at him. He can see in her eyes. She's saying, go while you still can. Um, I think one of the bits which has stayed with me most is the description of Daesh as fitting into two kind of true believers and then people who enjoyed the violence, um, which in some ways, I suppose, when you think about occupations throughout history is, is, is fairly uniform, but... I, it did sort of change how I thought about uh, them as an organisation. In this process where you've been involved in, what what to you has been the kind of biggest change in your understanding of them as a group or a state or a... Well, I never realised just quite how much their influence permeates almost every area of society and, and how it affects family life, for instance, not just rules that are spread about and people have to watch themselves when they're out in the street, it's the fear that permeates everywhere. It's the, the way that even he talks about how the, in the end there's nobody going to the shops. One, because the shopkeepers can't make a profit anymore and many have had to shut because um, Daesh restricts what they can charge for anything. 
even though things have got terribly expensive to get into the country because of the roadblocks uh, and various other things. Um, but even down to televisions, where they even control, you, 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 can't, you no longer can sell televisions. And he says at one point, we knew that we couldn't talk to the outside world, they'd banned that. Now it looks like we, we can't even look at it. Uh, and, and when they dictate even the length of people's trousers, again, there's the awful situation of women being told to cover up at all times. Uh, but I suppose readers are more aware that that happens in, 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 mm. in many countries. But the fact that if, if your trousers are too long, if they're below the ankles, you can be made to undergo a, a week-long Sharia course. I mean, again, it, it, things like that, I, I never understood. And how they've even banned smoking. And you get the feeling in the end, there's this sort of, well, two things. There's a sort of a desperation people are feeling because they can't escape it. The influence is everywhere. But there's still that sort of spirit. There's still that optimism. When one of Sam's friends, an older friend, is, he's asked, where did you get the cigarettes from? You know that Daesh has banned cigarettes. And he says, well, it'll take more than Daesh to, to stop me smoking. I can tell you that. So there's that, that feeling of resistance and that feeling that better times will be around the corner, even if it's a, a very, very long and winding corner. I think that's one of the things that came across most strongly to me is, you know, that he has a friend who's who's got a mobile phone so he can actually talk to people on the outside. Eventually he escapes from Raqqa, you know, and it's a taxi driver who is taking a huge risk to drive them for two days into um, Free Syrian Army territory. Can you give us an update on the, on the story after the end of the book? Yes, indeed. I was talking to Sama about three weeks ago now and... Uh, and he was describing his current situation. Um, he preferred, I didn't say exactly where he is, but he's, he's out of Islamic State-controlled territory. And again, in the, in the book, he, he writes so grippingly about how he escapes. It really is mm. that bit, such a page-turner. But he, uh, he now is, um, I think, finding life difficult. Um, he gets very depressed at times. He... he worries that maybe, as is expressed in the book, in his darker moments, he worries that maybe all the sacrifices that have been made by people might not be worthwhile. He laments the lack of action by the outside world. Um, but uh, he has some bit of good news. He's, he's heard that the girlfriend, his, his girlfriend, his only love, mm. from what I can gather, um, has also managed to get out of Raqqa. Uh, so she was promised as a sort of bride for a Daesh yes, fighter, what right, they to did pay was, off her brother's debt. Exactly, because they uh, they uh, arrested her brother and they said to Sama, uh, not sorry, they said to her rather, unless you marry a Daesh fighter, uh, your brother will be killed. So she really had no option. And you and again in, in, in the book, Sama talks about this and he's trying to convince himself that that this is a sacrifice that just had to happen. And he knows it does because he says this this man's life is surely worth more than my feelings. But then you can you can you can see that he's still struggling with that, thinking, yeah, but this is my my one and only love and uh, and I'm sanctioning, I'm helping what's basically uh, a form of rape and abduction mm. and sexual assault. I think it's a, an extraordinary book. Um, I think, you know, it reminded me very heavily of Anne Frank's diary, actually, that picture of, of what it's like just when something, when you say an occupation seeps into everything in your life and very quickly things that just seem utterly nightmarish from the outside are something that have to become, you deal with every day. Um, I mean, you've reported all around the world. How optimistic do you feel about the situation in Syria and any hope of a resolution there? Well, I'm, I'm most optimistic from the point of view that this optimism that I mentioned earlier on, still seems to be there. And you see Sama 
He goes through his moments of feeling really down. He goes through his moments of saying that he wanted to, to leave the uh, activist group he's in because he's basically just really, really scared, not surprisingly. Um, but he still carries on. He still won't let himself be traduced by what's around him. Neither will many of the people he's with, despite all they've gone through. And now we see the possibility that in the very near future, the probability that, that Rucker will be freed. Uh, and at the moment, of course, uh, it's, it's now isolated. Forces that are going to take them on have surrounded it. And so it'll be a very, I think, very long and a very bloody battle. But I do see that uh, it, it will be liberated. And, and Samba talks about how, when I asked him very recently, what's, what are his plans now? Does he plan to go to Turkey or does he plan to come to Europe like so many others? And he said, no, I'm determined to stay in Syria. He said, I may be forced out. I, I, if there's a government attack and I, I have no other option, but I'm determined to stay here and I'm determined to go back to Raqqa. Well, thank you very much for joining us to talk about an exceptional book, which is called The Raqqa Diaries. That was Mike Thompson of the BBC. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You, you ask us, you ask us. Um, so actually, someone wanted to know about whether or not there'll be a snap election. But I think the question they were really asking were, are you still excited about Mass Effect Andromeda? I, I, I am. I mean, some people will, it will already be out by the time some of you listen to it. I, so I'm, 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 I'm cautiously excited. Some of the reviews have been a bit, yeah. Um, but some of the reviews have been good. Um, but I'm, yeah, I, I think I think a lot of, so I've been replaying the original Mass Effects, um, and actually I think there are things about the first Mass Effect which, which aren't good, the interface is a bit buggy, there are still some odd problems in it. The other slight problem with the first Mass Effect game is that you, you can only, you, you have this weird thing where you can trip over bit things where you go, oh, it would have been bit more satisfying if I'd done this subquest before this subquest, etc., etc., all of which seem to be problems with this one as well. Is there a big jellyfish in this one that only speaks in like the second person? No, the first person plural. You know that weird jellyfish. Yeah. The Hannah. Yeah, I like the Hannah. That was quite. They were quite soothing. It was like talking to a lava lamp. Um, I, I don't. I'm not worried about Mass Effect Andromeda because I'm replaying The Witcher Three, which I now. After you mentioned this to me, I don't do now. Make sure as often as possible. I go. I'm a Witcher because I just kind of. It is. It is oddly satisfying to work out how many. In the conversation options, what are the uh, what are the options which will lead to him going? I'm a witcher. Thing is, guys, I'm a witcher. Yeah. I've also decided I've got my own morality code, which is no no jobs without dollar. Like I just you know no matter how I, I feel like for for their sake of them, the people who are paying me to kill the griffin or whatever, they need to feel like they've just you know they paid their dues to me. Also, it helps me to buy really sweet armor. Um, but yes, no. Let's go back to the snap election question because no one. No. Oh, and The Last Kingdom's back on TV as well. No one needs to hear about that. Um, do you think the next election will be in 2020? Yes. Um, I think there are a couple of... I mean, so one, obviously, Downing Street has ruled out having a snap election. However, the issue of the fact that they have a small majority and they keep having to retreat on things won't go away. Right? But also, if there's one thing that Theresa May's government has demonstrated, it is the turning circle of, like, a canal barge... Well, yeah, I think that's the thing. When people go, it would be easier for the government to have a snap election. When has Theresa May ever done things that have been 
the easy way, or indeed in many sense, in many indications, the sensible way. Like to take the whole Article Fifty thing, right? At every point of that, there has been a, a less painful way of doing it. One, don't trigger it until after the German elections, right? Two, concede on the court case. Just go, we're going to win the vote. So yeah, both both of, both of which have been massively validated, and I think that. The yeah, we've already got this weird thing. So we're triggering it on the 29th of March. Uh, the EU, because of the French elections and various other contests, won't come up with a line on it until the 29th of uh, April. Thankfully uh, for Britain, Mark Rutt has won the Dutch elections by a clear enough margin that he clearly will still be the prime minister. So there won't be a period where a fair, yeah, you know, a country which is fairly closely politically aligned with Britain is going, one second, I may or may not be back. But the the numbers for the next German government look very tight on both sides, right? However, the one thing which is absolutely certain is there will be a larger Social Democratic Party than there was before, which means that even if the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats are stuck with each other because the only coalition that works is a grand one, they will they will have a much longer conversation about it, partly because they they dislike each other, right? They have not enjoyed this second phase of coalition. They both would ideally prefer not to be together. So if they are forced to do so by by the voters, because that's the only thing which makes the coalition maths work, October, November, December, you know, plausibly even January, right? Then there won't be a German government, right? So that's most of the first year pissed away. And foreseeably so, right? So I think any kind of, oh, will she have an early election? Will she do something to make her life easy? When has she ever done something to make her life well, easy? Well, you made a good point as well, which is you can't, you can hardly turn around to the Scots and say, we can't put us through this period of turmoil. <laughs> By the way, funny story. Let's go through a period of, of turmoil. Yeah, it, it, it has so many problems. Also, to get, a, to get an early election, you either have to have a two-thirds vote or you have to know confidence yourself. In terms of their sense of her brand... Um, they feel she can't do game playing and, and no confidence herself. Also, because of how it's worded, it's really not clear who becomes prime minister in the 14 days that someone tries to form one. And actually, it feels... Cometh the hour, cometh the Jeremy. But actually, in, in terms of constitutional convention, the wording of a no confidence vote, the other side does get to become prime minister. Now, I'm not suggesting that I think that in, four, in just 14 days of no parliamentary majority... Jeremy Corbyn actually being the Prime Minister will mean that the polls will turn around. But actually, people would be less worried by him as Prime Minister because he would be Prime Minister already. And also because, like, demonstrably, there wouldn't be, you know, nuclear Armageddon. Right, yeah. So so this thing it is just one of those things where seeing as one assumes a large part of the Tory campaign would be, don't let this guy become Prime Minister. <laughs> Having let him become Prime Minister does slightly undercut that message. And so then you have to have a two-thirds majority. And to get a two-thirds majority, you have to persuade the DUP and the Conservative backbenchers to vote to be ignored, right? That is the attraction of an early election. It's, could you please vote for me to ignore you? Not attractive from their perspective. And then you basically have to persuade a critical mass of Labour MPs to vote for the C, right? Now, there are a lot of unhappy <laughs> Labour MPs out there, but mm, I'm I'm not quite sold on the idea that the numbers are going to be there for people to to vote for electoral annihilation 
and, and and she also doesn't want one, so it's a bit of a, a non-starter. But I just think the problem is that everyone kind of wants one in the sense of like everyone in the commentariat, I guess, wants one because they think that the current situation is madness. And that's the problem is it, it is madness, but it's not in the interests of people who would actually make those decisions to resolve that madness currently. Well, also, I think one of the things that no one really realised about having a five-year parliament, and I maintain that I think five years is, is too long, right? I think four, maybe a three-year parliament. Two, I think you get paralysis. Three, maybe you have the Australian problem where everyone coos each other all the time because they're worried about elections. But five years is, is an excessive amount of time. It means you can be in power for a decade having won twice. Um, but usually when a parliament goes for five years, it's because the government is terrified of the electorate, which means that you don't have this weird barren third year where nothing happens. Whereas what it's created both times is in 2013, the coalition had basically run out of things it agreed on. So they did nothing. Theresa May has no agenda, right? Literally, it's just like Ed Miliband's rhetoric. Oh, let's have some grammar schools. Um, but we'll keep watering that down. And that's about it. And so I think the other reason why everyone wants a snap election is because it's something to write about, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Like, what else is there to say about Theresa May's no agenda? That it doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that, we saw that one. And uh, we'll look forward to Theresa May triggering that election tomorrow, finally killing your reputation as the oracle of British politics. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and Helen Lewis. Our music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We're produced by India Borg, mixed by James Shields. And make sure to vote for us on the British Podcast Awards. Just go to British Podcast Awards and then search New Statesman Podcast. Don't vote for anyone else. Don't vote for the other NS podcasts. Seriously can't win here. <laughs> <laughs>